Amen. You may be seated. If you'll find your Bibles, open them up or turn them on today to Genesis chapter 1. Kind of an easy task for you since it's the first book in the Bible. We're also going to be looking at Romans a little bit later on in the series. We are in this sermon series right now, our Easter series. We call it the Big Picture. And what we are trying to do is help you get a, a good understanding of the big scope, the 10,000-foot view of what Scripture is all about, and help you understand the connection between Genesis and Revelation. One of the most powerful arguments for the veracity of the Scriptures is that there is a remarkable unity that goes throughout the entire Bible. And if you ever stop and think about this, you have 40 authors over 1,500 years that wrote in different locations with different cultures that did not have modern communications. And yet when you bring their collection of writings together, inspired by the Holy Spirit, you have a remarkable work that goes with a unify that shows a unifying theme. And so today we look at the beginning of that story in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 where the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in the opening line of God's story, there is an answer. There is an answer to one of life's ultimate questions. Anyone that is a serious thinker, anybody that likes to search for meaning in life or or truth, you must deal with this question of where did we all come from? How did we get here? There is so there is such a massive universe around us. Where did it come from? I my 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 body is so intricate in its design. How did it get that way? Well the Christian response to this is found in the very first verse of the story. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, when it comes to this big question, where did we come from? There are three main camps in which you can classify people's thoughts. The first would be the secular evolutionist. Now, a secular evolutionist believes that in the beginning there was a matter or perhaps an energy, and there was not God. There was just matter or energy. And if you take billions of years, in other words, a massive amount of time, and if you apply the right conditions, then the result can be the world and the universe in which we live and all that we experience. And so to the secular evolutionist, our world can be explained through a series of interactive causes and effects, perhaps even interactive matter. And so you see this taught and it permeates throughout a lot of our culture today. For example, Simba. Simba the lion. He eats the antelope. And the antelope eats the grass. Then Simba dies and becomes the grass. And the antelope eats Simba. The circle of life. You know, it, it, it's taught. It, it's interacting matter. It's, it's cause and effect. Now, to the secular evolutionist, Life can be explained through these series of causes and effects. In fact, it's a very 
closed uh, a, a philosophy in the sense that behavior is either totally or virtually determined by the causes in your life instead of any type of free will responsibility. Now, within this large camp of thinking, there are two main branches when it comes to God. You have the atheistic evolutionist who says, uh, we evolve without the presence of God whatsoever. And then you have another camp that is sometimes called intelligent design evolution, which would say they, they embraced evolution, but they believed that God was acting through that process. Now, within culture as a whole, if you go to the museum, if you turn on Nat Geo and watch the documentary, there's always that college professor guy, that narrator that has the European accent. Have you ever noticed that people just sound smarter if they talk in a European accent? You know, you can be pretty um, dumb, and, and if you speak in a European accent, you come across as smart. It's amazing, you know? Uh, but if, if you were just to listen to that, you would conclude that, that it really seems like virtually everybody embraces uh, atheistic evolution. I mean, anybody that's really intelligent, anybody that's really with it, it, it just seems like that that's where they, they land. Uh, the reality is that in our country, and, and really globally, that's not the case at all. Uh, the Gallup poll, which is an independent polling agency, it's not a, a Christian-based polling agency, uh, it keeps up with this. They, they released their latest poll in 2013 in regard to creationism, and they found that in the United States that still today, 42% of the United States population are literal creationists, believing that, that God created the world uh, in, in a manner consistent with the Genesis account. And that really has not changed over the last 35 years. Since 1982, that statistic has ranged between 40 and 46%. When it comes to intelligent design, the poll found that an additional 31% believe in the existence of God. They believe that God created the heavens and the earth, but they believe that God used some type of evolutionary process in doing so. And that, that statistic has also ranged between 30 and 40% since 1982. When it came to atheistic evolution, meaning uh, Americans who believe that God had absolutely no role or does not exist at all within the process of life, only 19% of Americans embrace that. And that statistic has been between 10 and 19% since 1982. There were an additional 8% who felt like we came from aliens or they had absolutely no clue at all how life got here whatsoever. Now here's the conclusions that I draw, drew from this data. Uh, when it comes to atheistic evolution in the United States, it is rejected by over 80% of Americans. And that statistic has been relatively unchanged through all the advancements that we've seen in communications. Basically, there is something innate within us that realizes there is something more than just us. There is something innate within us that realizes that something doesn't come from nothing, that there is an intelligence, that there is a divine design behind the creative order. And some form of creation is embraced by 74% of the American population. 
Now, there's another main camp of thinking, and that would be called the spiritualist. The spiritualist would say there is a God, but that God has no material being. In fact, whenever you think of God, you might think of him in terms of a spiritual energy, or maybe not even him, you think of it in terms of a spiritual energy. And within spiritualism, matter and by default materialism are to be rejected in favor of the energy of the spirit. So the spirit always trumps matter in spiritualism. Now they will speak in terms of karma, inner light, following the force, Luke, following your path, Frequently now, I'm hearing more and more uh, spiritualists speak in terms of Mother Nature. And they use Mother Nature in a synonymous way for God. They refuse to say God, but they'll willingly say Mother Nature. And what the spiritualist will say is that what we experience in the physical realm is actually a result of our spiritual energy. And so when it comes to God and the universe, they would say that life is, is actually not to be viewed as a collection of separate things. That life is actually one big thing. And there is an energy source, a a life source, and that massive connection of spiritual energy is the God force. So in some ways, to the spiritualist, the universe itself is God. Or the collective human creative spirit is God, and it's out of that energy force that life comes about. Now, the third major camp would be the creationist camp. And the creationist camp, most readily articulated by Christians, uh, begins with this thought. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So let's break down this verse a little bit. In the beginning, God. Now, what the Bible is teaching us here is that for a a Christian, God is your absolute reality in the universe. Now, logic would tell you there has to be something that is just absolute. There has to be something uh, that wasn't created, something that just is. If you're a secularist, That absolute reality might be matter, it might be energy, but you still must at some point acquiesce to the reality that there is something out there that just is and everything else came from that. For a Christian, our absolute reality is God. Hey, Dad, who created God? Nobody created God. God just is. He is the I am. And you see this theme taught in Scripture. You remember when Moses went into the Pharaoh and he, he asked God, okay, God, who should I say is sending me because I need some authority before I go into the Pharaoh? And God said, you tell him, I am is sending you in the, in the root of the name of God. Uh, Yahweh is this word, this Hebrew word to be, Hayah. And, and it has, it teaches the connotation of God just is. He is the absolute reality from which everything else flows. So in the beginning, God. Well, now what did God do? God created. I love creative people. I, I love hanging out with, with folks that are creative. Now, now, honestly, creative people can kind of be a little bit different sometimes, but I, I enjoy creativity. And sometimes uh, people try to 
push down creative individuals, but I want to remind you that creativity is found in the first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. God didn't just create a vanilla creation. No offense to those of you that like vanilla ice cream, but he created creation with variety, and God created creation with a, with a distinct beauty. Uh, there's different landscapes, different things to be enjoyed. Last September, a group of guys from here went hiking together in Utah, and we went to Zion National Park, and one day we went up to the highest point in the park, and we went up to a, an area called Observation Point, and from there, you could look out over the, the mass of God's creation. And I remember standing there just awed at the beauty of what God had created. It, it was unbelievable to see just how beautiful this is that God made. He created the world with flavor. Aren't you glad that food has variety of taste? That everything doesn't taste like lima beans? Gives me the shudders just thinking. You too, Steve. I see you're in the lima bean, anti-lima bean camp. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I remember one time I was going on a walk and went down this path. It was a snowy day, a cold day. I was going into the woods and came across some wild blueberries. And the friend that I was walking with, we, we just stopped and for 10 minutes or so. We just ate these wild blueberries, better than anything that Kroger could ever produce. I mean, it was incredible. The flavors just exploded in your mouth. And I had this little moment of worship where I just thanked God for the flavors, for, for the taste, for the various things that we take in and the sensory environment that He created. God created the world and the universe with an incomprehensible greatness. There are, you, you could fit one million earths into the sun. And there are superstars out there that could hold 50 million suns. And there are billions of stars in the galaxy and billions of galaxies in the universe. And what's really remarkable is the universe is virtually empty. <laughs> it is incomprehensible how large the universe is and yet it stands as a testimony to the greatness and majesty of our Lord. God created the world with a divine design. There is a divine ecosystem in how the world works together. And there is a, an interdependence in what God created. And so you bring all these things together. God's creation, its beauty, its flavors, its majesty, its interconnectivity. And all these things begin to form a choir of praise to the glory of God. They testify to what we believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, as you continue in the story, in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image, he created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now, notice verse 27. There's a lot of uh, truth packed into one verse right there. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. There's several conclusions that we as Christians draw from this account. Number one, life is a gift from God. Life comes from God. It has a purpose because it comes from God. 
Your life is not an accident. You are not here merely because of random chance. You did not simply evolve from pond scum, but you are here with a purpose. You are here with a divine design, and your life itself is precious. It's a gift from God. Do not take your life. Do not put your life in situations where you are being irresponsible because life itself is a gift from God. Life is not something that you choose. You don't, you, you don't reduce life down to a choice. Hey, I'm going to, I think I'll just, I think I'll decide to be born today. You, you don't make that decision. Life, life is a gift from God, and it's a precious gift from God. In all the creative order, human life is to be valued as a chief gift from God. Human beings are made in the image of God. Now, that's one of those themes that we could talk about for a long, long time, but let me reduce it to its most simple terms. Created in the image of God means that you as a person are unique. You're unique in the creative order in that you seek spiritual things. You seek relationship with the divine. You seek deeper meaning. You philosophize. You create yourself. My dogs do not make movies called My Master and Me. Salmon do not write journals about their journey upstream. Only human beings take time to try to answer these ultimate questions of life beyond the coldness of cause and effect, beyond the coldness of a nihilistic, deterministic reality. Humanity seeks beauty. We seek art. We enjoy the complexities of love. We desire to live in deep, meaningful relationships. Now, God, according to the scriptures, also created the complement of gender. And within gender, he created them male and female. We see a simultaneous equivalency between men and women. And yet we also see a divine distinctive and a complement of gender that expands the reflection of what it means to be made in the image of God. And it reveals to us more clearly exactly what the love and character of our Creator are all about. And then we also see in the verse that humankind has been given a responsibility that we are to rule over the fish, the sea, the birds, the sky, and the livestock. Yes, in one sense, that means humankind is to be valued, or human life is to be valued in a, in a sense even greater than that of the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky. But it also means there is a divine responsibility that we as human beings have been given to make sure that we are good stewards of the creation in which we live. At creation, God also established the family. When you go into chapter 2 and verse 24, you see these words. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. When Jesus was asked about the original intent of marriage, he went back and referenced this verse. This was what it was like in the beginning that a man would leave his father and mother and he would bond with his wife and they would become one flesh. Verse 25 says, Both the man and his wife were naked and yet they felt no shame. 
foundational to any society, any human society, at the foundation is this relationship. When a man and a woman grow up and they leave their childhood homes, they leave their families, and they come together in a lifelong covenant, as Christians we believe that there is a distinct marriage covenant that is taught in the Bible. It is a covenant between a husband and his wife and God. It is a covenant marriage. I sometimes use the word a biblical covenant marriage. We sometimes refer to it as holy matrimony. There are a lot of things outside of the church that have been called marriage. Common law marriage has been called marriage for a long time. People are now in the process of judicially uh, redefining what is marriage and what is not marriage. But in Scripture, marriage is between two believers who come together as husband and wife, and they enter into a covenant marriage between the man, the woman, and God. And within that marriage, there is a bond. The Bible says within that marriage, two people become one flesh. Within that marriage, there is intimacy. There is nakedness without shame. I once wrote in a paper on human sexuality that sexuality is mortal love's most powerful act, bonding souls, expressing love, extending pleasure, and forming family. It exposes a couple's mutual vulnerability and created compatibility, revealing a passion that is not learned but instilled within divine intent. Now, why this is so special to us is because in the coming together of a man and a woman into a covenant marriage relationship, there is a uniqueness. There is a uniqueness that is not experienced in any other bonding. You may have friendships, you may have legal connections, but there is only one relationship that from that bond there can be a physical intimacy that can take the gift of life that God has extended to us and extend it on to future generations. And it is from within the marriage relationship, from within the family relationship, that we find societies are strong because that's where the family unit is established. And those of us who have been called to be parents, those of us who are living in a, a marriage, and particularly those of you that have children currently in the home, should realize that a loving, happy, respectful, godly, committed marriage is among the greatest gifts that you can possibly give to your children. Children need moms and dads who are committed to each other, who love them, who love the Lord, who understand that sexuality is something that is to be experienced within the relationship of marriage and who raise the children in the way of the Lord, in the family, in the home, so that whenever children grow and mature and are ready to go out on their own, they are able to listen to the voice of God and make wise decisions themselves. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31 says that God saw all that he made and it was very good. God looked at his creation and he said to himself, this is good. And in the original creation, 
there was a goodness and a divine balance. You had love without hate. You had nature without pollution. You had Hershey miniatures without fat. I love Mr. Goodbars, especially in those miniature sizes. They are my divine weakness. You had marriage without in-laws. Oh, you really did have marriage without, think about it, Adam and Eve. Most of all, you had life without death. But into the world slithered sin. And you know the story. You know the story of Adam and Eve and the, the first sin. And what transpires from there is that sin becomes the universal epidemic. So that everyone is stained by sin. And the results of sin are always fatal. When sin takes up residence within you, it will always lead to both physical and spiritual death. Romans chapter 5 describes the epidemic-like effect. It says in verse 12 of Romans chapter 5, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. Why is there so much injustice? Why is there so much darkness? Why is there so much death in this world? Because of sin. And the scriptures say, In this way, death spread to all men because all sinned. When you flip a few chapters over and you get to Romans chapter 8, you find that sin does not just affect humankind, but sin has actually stained the creation and holds the creation in a state of imperfection and bondage. In verse 19 of Romans chapter 8, the Bible says, For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. It's referring to the second coming. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. And verse 22 is something that many of you ladies can, can, can relate to. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Literally, the, the creation is in a, a holding state that it is in bondage, that, that it is waiting for new life to be delivered. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4 begins with these words, But God, into the darkness, into the despair, into the bondage, God intervenes. And God does something that only He could do. Now you say, why did God intervene into our scene so that we might be redeemed? Well, verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy... And because of his great love that he had for us. Motivated by his mercy, driven by his love, verse 5 says, God made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses. And then it reminds us of perhaps the most glorious thought in all the Bible you are saved by grace. And so from this creation account, the story of Scripture unfolds. From this creation account, 
we see the unity and the theme of the Bible. It begins with, in the beginning, God created. Then sin entered into this creation so that we now live in a fallen world. We live in a world where darkness is, is prevailing. We live in a world where all sin, where all fall short of the glory of God. But then God begins making a series of promises. We call those covenants. We'll look at them in detail next week where God makes a promise to Noah and then God makes a promise to Abraham and then God makes a promise to Moses and God makes a promise to David and God begins working through His people, Israel, to bring about the redemption of the world. And then there's another promise that there would be a Messiah There would be an anointed one who was unlike any other anointed one who had ever come. And this anointed one would have the power to forgive sin. And this anointed one would have the power to transform hearts. And it spoke to the Christ, to Jesus, the Messiah, who would one day come. That which we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation, whenever God comes and dwells among us. And Christ lives the life that none of us could ever live. And then you have the betrayal and the tragedy, and the torturous events of the cross. And as believers, we don't see the cross merely as the death of a good teacher, but we see the cross as the atonement, that at one moment in history, where literally history stands in the balance, and Jesus takes on the sins of the world, and he dies as a substitute for you and for me, absorbing the wrath of God intended for sin into himself, and he he engages into the depths of death. He tastes the wages of sin, death. But because of his perfection, because of his divinity, death cannot contain him. And we have the story of conquering, that which we celebrate at Easter whenever Christ overcomes death and the curse of Genesis is reversed so that we do not have to live a life with a destiny of isolation and eternal death, but we can live a life with a destiny of eternal life because the Scriptures say all who believe in him are righteous in him. Before Christ ascends, he calls together his disciples. And we have the formation of the church where Jesus says you are to go and make disciples and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. And you see these two big ideas that as followers of Jesus, we would live our lives together in communities called church where we would love one another and and help one another and encourage each other and learn the scriptures together. But the church would not just be isolated to a campus, but the church would be a, a movement that would go to the ends of the earth, a movement that would go and share the grace and love of God with people all over the planet. And then the story also speaks of the fact that Christ will come again. And there's this beautiful connection that if you ever really begin to comprehend between the first coming of Christ and the second coming because at the first coming of Christ uh, the Lord redeems the human heart he makes it possible so that our hearts can be transformed in salvation and at the second coming of Christ he'll redeem the creation itself all things will become new the creation that is currently in bondage will be set free and Christ will come again 
So through these weeks, through the Easter season, we're going to continue to look at the big picture of Scripture, and we're going to go over this uh, several times so that you begin to really understand it. And I think each week you'll, you'll see a little bit more and more and more so that you begin to see the timeline of Scripture come into focus. But I want you to know today a very simple and yet unbelievably powerful truth. I want you to know that God loves you. I want you to know that God is rich in mercy and abundant in love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and that we have been saved and made alive in Christ because he loves. God cares about you. You're special to him. You're not just a random act of creation. You're not an accident. Your life is valuable. Even when you go through hard times, even when you find yourself um, hurting, grieving, in disagreement with others, your life is valuable. Even when you're not where you should be, God's love still abounds. While we were yet sinners, God demonstrated His love in this way, that Christ died for us. God reaches through our junk and grabs us with His love. He calls us to be His, to be His children, to love Him and to know Him. You are not an accident. You are not simply the creation of a random set of of events that led you into a deterministic, cold, cause and effect, nihilistic existence in which you're going to live and die with no meaning except that which you can squeeze out of today. Your life has a connection to eternal purposes. And your life can be lived through your actions, through your attitudes, through your words, in such a way that brings glory to God. And when you do that, you take your place in the creative choir and you sing praises to God through your life and you begin to realize, this is why I'm alive. I have been created. And I have been created with intent and design and purpose. And I want my life to make much of my God. Would you stand with me, please, as we come to a time of commitment? The band's going to come and, and lead us in song. Uh, I want to encourage you during this time, if, if I can pray with you, I'm here at the front. If today you desire to uh, become a Christian, to place your faith in Jesus, I invite you to come and see me and make that decision today. For some, you might desire to spend this time singing. For others, uh, you might desire to spend this time in prayer. You follow the Holy Spirit as He leads. Lord, we thank you for these truths. May they change us from the inside out. May what we have seen in Scripture today land in our hearts and make us new creations. May the end result of our worship be change. In Jesus' name, amen.